This is The Strategist, episode 1004. My name is Dane Velcher. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, one out of the three of us is drinking chocolate milk like a liter a jug. Of yeah, you know, multiple liters. Carter. Carter, do you want to explain what's going on? Uh, how desperate have things gotten in Surrey? What's, what's happening, my friend? <laughs> I'll tell you something. When you're an athlete, as I am, um, you use chocolate milk to refresh and re- reinvigorate your, your body. We went for a ride yesterday, and uh, the chocolate milk, I, I have no choice. I have to drink it because, you know, that's what athletes do. That's what athletes do. Well, and also your, your mom gave it to you because you got an A-plus on your math exam. No, Corey, I'm an athlete. Uh, let's not let's not <laughs> diminish this by bringing intellectualism into it. I mean, I know the only way you got chocolate milk was from your brain. Some of us have the brain and the athletic package. Oh, yeah, you're there's the only two package. people. Yep. There's only two people on earth with the full package. It's me and Ken Bosenkohl. That's it. We're the only two with the full package. I don't want to talk about your package anymore. Can we move on, Zane? Is that you want to talk about Ken Bosenkohl's package? Is that better? <laughs> Lucerne. Foremost or dairy milk? What sort of milk folks are you guys? Or are you guys in the in, in the lactate, in the in the dairy free milk uh, territory? I'm, what's, I'm what's all about that of... fair life stuff. You fair, know? Okay, I don't know what the fuck that is, Carter. What what what, what about you? Anything that that uh, a mainstream person listening to this podcast would know about? I've got a Dairyland here. It's apparently a Saputo Inc. brand. So I inadvertently I appear to be supporting Nicholas Latifi and his F1 career. So that turned out to be a mistake. <laughs> that's good. It's, it's, this is a great that's start. Good. That's good. No, this is a great start. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, Corey, we did episode one of The Strategist um, on, our, on our Patreon only. Uh, this was uh, Carter's first absence from In 1,004 uh, episodes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Carter, uh, you know, no chocolate milk for missing last episode. That's for sure. Uh, how does it feel to, to be back? And how did it feel to, to listen to an episode? Because you are the one that listens to all of them that did not have you in it. I mean, it was missing some obviously important insights. Um, like what? Like what, Carter? Go ahead. Explain them. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't really remember the show that well, if I'm honest. I mean, I was listening to it while doing other things. Um, I think, in fact, it was sleeping. I think I was sleeping. But I listened to the whole show. But I appreciated it. I thought it was really good. Uh, to be fair, that is our sweet spot. People who are asleep. <laughs> Um, People yeah. are, are just about to fall asleep. You know what I'm going to do, Carter? Uh, Corey, you can take a break for a second. Uh, you'll you'll jump oh, in, in in a moment here because Carter, I'm going to give you uh, an eight second clock. Let's start our first segment. Our first segment, Stephen Carter, in eight seconds. Carter, I'm going to run through what we talked about last time. I want to give you a fair shake on it. Sure, I want to sure. get you your your opportunity to give us your hot take in eight seconds or less. Okay. You got good, good. eight seconds for each of these each of these topics that we covered last time. Corey and I, we went through quite a bit. Yeah, did we not? No, Corey? It was a good I think show. we, we oh, went show. through a, a, a shit ton of topics. A shocking Carter. volume, almost yeah. as though there wasn't this this padding that you would yeah, normally this, find in the this, show. Uh, this dead weight, this uh, this sort of uh, hot air, well, no, this sort near of dead time filling near dead near, weight. Near dead weight. Okay, yes, that's yeah. true. That's true. Ending uh, its life expectancy weight. Yeah, no, this is good. true. I mean, but trying to rejuvenate with the chocolate milk, Carter. Here we go. First, first topic that Corey and I hit last time: question period. The media was going fucking nuts that Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau were having a showdown. Give me your hot take on question period as it relates to this showdown for both of these individuals. What do each of them need to know? What do each of them need to be aware of, Carter? Totally agree with Corey Hogan. There's never been a clip come out of question period that made any difference. Zane, you were completely right. Tom Mulcair would have been prime minister if question period mattered. 
nicely done. Carter, Holy the shit, guarded... he did listen to the episode. He did listen to it. Yeah, I mean, he clearly didn't put him to sleep. Carter, Garnet Genuous versus Dale Smith on the media question. So Dale Smith tweeting out this thing. He says it's a joke. He's not going to apologize. This is the journalist uh, saying, you know, how dare Garnet Genuous subject us. This is the MP from Sherwood Park. Subject us to a crazy question trying to quote Bohemian Rhapsody in like a sing-songy way. Carter, your take on this, especially now with the added layers to the story around having Dale Smith move from the um, uh, from the gallery. Yeah, I think that it's stupid that he had to move from the gallery. I think that Genius is a fucking idiot, and uh, he was trying to overreach. Dale pointed it out. Probably shouldn't have included that we shoot uh, lame horses, but that was a lame horse that deserved to be shot. That shouldn't have been on public. It shouldn't have been on the public airways at all. And uh, the fact that it was going to be recorded forever enhanced uh, makes genius or genius look like an absolute moron moving on carter i think our application to the press gallery is going to be rejected now mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. absolutely uh and by the way this is a- an absolute side note we are in the market for law firms uh, yeah. if law firms want to sponsor <laughs> this podcast and just you even advise us Dennis on, is free yeah even advice on borderline related issues uh we talked about the ndp carter Jagmeet Singh is in this interesting position. His polling seems to be where it usually is for the NDP, the mid-20s, at least I should say usually in the last couple of years. But there's calls that Pierre Polyev is stealing his young voters, his youth voters, that this is going to be a, a train wreck heading into the next election. Do the NDP federally need a new leader? Stephen Carter, we discussed that. What is your hot take? Uh, they don't need a new leader. He was in, He's as ineffective now as he's going to be in the future. Uh, this is just the way he is. Um, they didn't think they needed a new leader uh, before Pierre, and they don't need one now. They're just going to continue to be, uh, you know, the guy who the guys who hold Justin Trudeau to account for a dental plan. Two more topics, and I'm going to dovetail the last one into our next segment because I want to talk about it a bit more. But okay. but Carter Danielle Smith, let's talk about her. We'll talk about her a bit later in the show as well. Two new endorsements: Mike Ellis uh, alongside Angela Pitt. Overrated, underrated. We were kind of talking about what these endorsements meant at this period in time. Is this forward momentum? Is this a byproduct of that phone call strategy that you were suggesting about talking to those that are on the fence or have not supported you? What do you think about Daniel Smith bringing two more folks from her caucus, from the caucus, not her caucus just yet, uh, but on side? Angela Pitt just can't keep her crazy inside. And Mike Ellis is looking for halfway decent uh, cabinet position. Making nothing more of it. Nope, that's it. Nicely done, Carter. Look at that. He, I think for the most part, Corey, he stuck to the eight seconds. I don't know. What do you think? Anything you want to retort on before we move on to our next segment about Jason Kenney? Because, yes, we're uh, going to talk about Jason Kenney. I, I want to know where this efficiency is in the other 1,003 episodes we've done. This is true. Maybe it's just because we People haven't given them the People usually pay extra for me, but they didn't. So they already paid extra for you two, and I feel like it was bad enough. <laughs> Don't yeah. worry. Bloated, bloated Carter can make an appearance again because we're moving on to our first segment. Our first segment, where was this guy? Yes, guys, I want to talk about Jason Kenny. So Carter, Corey and I, in our last episode on the Patreon episode, we talked about Jason Kenny. What is his plan? We talked about the Alberta is calling campaign that is going on in, uh, in Toronto and Vancouver. Corey, with his unique insights working in public affairs and government communications, kind of deconstructed the campaign a bit, talked about what he would have done differently. I don't want to you know, relitigate all that. People can find that on, on the Patreon episode to talk about the, the bones of that campaign and what it's trying to do. What I do want to talk about a bit more is Jason Kenney, Carter, 
because Kenny gave two speeches this weekend, one at the uh, Canada Strong and Free Conference. We'll talk about that one uh, less, but second. And, and firstly, I believe it was AUMA that he spoke at as well, where he gave a keynote address. And in that keynote address, packaged, um, someone on Twitter has kind of put together some of the comedic stylings of Jason Kenny. Corey, do we have that clip that we can we can play? The single largest film production in Canadian history, the HBO uh, zombie movie, The Last of Us. Uh, fill in your jokes right there. <laughs> I don't know. I, they still won't let me on. I've been trying to get a walk on. Um, but as, as they say, I, I guess I'm proof that politics really is showbiz for ugly people. <laughs> this is in Vancouver as well. Uh, come, come to Alberta to see something you've never seen before, an affordable detached home. It's true. And he said, Premier, I know it looks pretty bleak for you Albertans right now, but let me tell you, um, sorry, Justin, I'll call back later. Um, I said, I got nothing left to lose. Thank you. Well, Peter, this is clearly not a UCP caucus meeting. <laughs> Too soon? I subjected you to a minute 20 of Jason Kenny. Did you think that would ever happen on this podcast, guys? Seriously. I, uh, I'm very upset. Yeah, you should be. But yeah. there's a reason why I did that. Because the commentary from that clip, I think, is really interesting and, and allows us to maybe have a conversation on strategy. Because... I'm not going to say this is an overwhelming sentiment, but there is certainly a sentiment from a lot of the, the the progressive, maybe even centrist types. Where was this guy? Where was this comedic powerhouse? Where was this charm offensive Jason Kenny? Where was this self-deprecating person? And part of me wants to pull my hair out, but it's not my job on this podcast to do that, Carter. It's your job, and yeah, we've been seeing the, we've been seeing the outcome of that over the years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. So, Carter, talk to me about this. Is that a valid sort of sentiment? Where was this guy? Or, or, or is that not even possible that this version of Jason Kenny could not have been presented to the public? Or, or is this also something that we've talked about in the past where people are viewing this frame through how they, they see him in the moment versus how they saw him in the past and the, the emotional resonance to that? Start us off here because I think there's a strategy discussion to fully analyze could he have been this person and quote unquote won over people with the personality that we saw on stage here. Carter? You know, I thought political audiences were pretty hard up having to listen to the three of us to find their comedy fixes. That was pathetic comedy. That was just not even good comedy. So um, the fact that we're all looking at this and saying, oh my goodness, uh, isn't he ever so funny and charming? Uh, first of all, he's always been charming. We've talked about that, Corey and I, I don't know how many times, especially in the one-on-ones. Um, he has been uh, a guy that we've watched win over room after room after room using uh, similar techniques to what he had yesterday or the other day. Um, this is not new for Jason Kenney. What is new is what he said in his speech. He has nothing left to lose. He can say whatever he wants. Um, the joke about Justin probably would have played in any room. The, the UCP caucus probably wasn't going to work, right? So now that we know that it's dysfunctional, it, it had some meat on that particular bone. But the truth of the matter is this Jason Kenny was there the whole time. 
Corey said something interesting in, in a couple of podcasts ago when we were talking about Justin Trudeau and and the way he was you know singing uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. If you don't like someone, you, the way they hold their knife and fork will make you crazy. Uh, this is the this is what happens when there's no longer any stakes as to whether or not you like or don't like this guy. He no longer has the same power over us, so it doesn't matter if we like him. And suddenly we're open again to the idea of liking him. When someone announces they're going to retire, their popularity jumps. All the polling right now that's coming out on Jason Kenney shows his popularity jumping. This guy was there the whole time. Corey and I, and, and, he, and even you, Zane, even you have pointed out that this guy can be very, very charming uh, when he wants to be. Corey, talk to me about this, and I'll maybe ask a more pointed question stemming from Carter's comments here. Could Jason Kenney have run his entire tenure as if he had nothing to lose? Uh, no, because he had things to lose. I mean, that's <laughs> right, the simple right. answer. <laughs> exactly. uh, but I, I just want to plus one everything Carter said. Absolutely fucking nailed it. Uh, the people who say, where has this guy been? I, you know, I, I worked for the guy for a year. I'll tell you, my first reaction was, have you never seen a Jason Kenney speech? This is every Jason Kenney speech. You know, the jokiness, the self-depreciating, kind of the quirky sides, seeming a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more erudite than that sort of get her done attitude that was in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the in the view in elections. This this is who the guy is. Um, but to Carter's point, there were obviously certain jokes that were just off limits. And Jason Kenney is a smart enough man to know not to fall into what I would call the John Crosby trap and you know this is going to be a, a deep poll for some of our audience who say under the <laughs> but do it do it do it do it though yeah. do it but yeah crosby was a conservative mp um who you know smart witty newfoundland fellow lots of charm could never stop himself from saying the funny thing even if it was absolutely self-destructive right yeah and you had these blow-ups where he would say things like oh pass the tequila sheila and uh you know in the house of commons and uh, it didn't go over well People didn't yeah. like that. Um, Jason Kenny doesn't suffer from that disease. He knows when to say, oh, maybe it's funny, but my job isn't to be funny. My job is to be the premier of this province. My job is to try to keep my caucus together as its leader of this party. Um, but this is that guy. I, and, you know, Zane, you and I uh, were at... Um, I knew you were going to bring this up. Yes. Yeah, we were at an event uh, for the Alberta Real Estate Association. I was on a panel. You were on a panel Daniel Smith was on the same panel as me and you, me and Daniel Smith were in the back of the room sitting right next to each other, talking to each other as Jason Kenney gave a speech about, you know, the future of Alberta and what was going well. And, and many of the same sort of beats, much of the same sort of energy. This is who the guy is. And I think at the time you and I were saying, boy, if this guy gets a chance to get out there again, you know, that he's got a, he's got a shooter's chance. Um, now, Obviously didn't work out for him, but uh, but this is Jason Kenny, and and Carter has absolutely nailed it. There are no longer stakes for us as voters, and so people are willing to like the guy again. Mm. And they were not willing to like the guy as long as they thought even sort of giving him credit for a joke or something might prop him up in some way, and they were not willing to prop up his politics in any way. Carter, before I ask you whether this is deliberate, whether this is part of the rehabilitation, whether this is part of the legacy, I'll get to all of that. Talk to me about if there is a lesson here for Kenny, because from what I'm understanding and collecting from what you guys are saying, you're saying this is a byproduct of voters now giving him a chance. Could Kenny have done anything as related to the behaviors we saw in this clip that I subjected you both to and the audience by extension 
But could he have done anything like this during his tenure? Was there a lesson for him to learn maybe retrospectively about how he should have behaved, how he should have talked, his humanizing qualities? You guys are saying they were there the whole time. Or is this simply, simply just voters giving him a chance because there's no stakes uh, uh, to, 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 to them liking him at this point? Well, it's interesting because I'm not sure that we've written the full uh, dissection on how Kenny fell apart. Um, mm. If I was to offer like a, a 20 second uh, review, he falls apart by overreaching, right? He's Icarus. He's flown too co- close to the sun by bringing to, together these two halves of the conservative movement. These two halves of the conservative movement don't work very well in this particular province. They they're different cousins, if you will. They don't share the same values, even though they they share the same title. So he brings them all together, gets them all into the same tent, and then finds out through crisis that it's nearly impossible to keep them all together. It might mm-hmm. have been possible to keep them together if the crisis had only been financial. As soon as you add a social crisis on top of the financial crisis that he was facing, he was really in over his head, and it wouldn't have mattered how charming he had been, the speeches that he made, how authentic, uh, to pull back another word that we've been using a lot on the podcast. Yeah, recently. yeah, like our, like our continuous kind of coverage yeah. on authenticity. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have mattered because at the end of the day, he was going to say something that was going to piss off half his caucus. And ultimately, that was his undoing. Um, he had to say things that would piss off a lot of, a lot of his caucus mates. Um, that's a problem for, for him. And I think that that's ultimately what his failing was. How he would have fared had he just won the PC leadership and resurrected that party, we'll never know. Uh, we'll never know if he'd taken mm. over the leadership uh, and left, or, or just left Brian Jean hanging, um, the ineffective leader that he is. And I think we've seen recently, and I'm not sure you're going to bring up how bad Brian Jean is right now, but if he'd just left Brian Jean uh, withering, holding on to the, the small end of the stick with the Wild Roads Caucus, I think Jason Kenney... Uh, governs for quite a while um, because he would have had much more com- co- ability to uh, to be himself and to um, speak the truth that I think he wanted to speak about COVID and our response to it. Corey, the feedback is is minimal. It's anecdotal. But seeing where people or at least some folks are at with this commentary has kind of tweaked the question I asked Carter. Were the lessons for Kenny to be learned and for other politicians to be learned around humor, charisma, charm, how you apply it? Or is this simply, as you guys have iterated, uh, just a matter of no stakes for Jason Kenney, so we're, we have license to like him? No, I, I think there are lessons here. This is in some ways, this is the Bullworth effect, right? You remember that, uh, that. Yeah. that sequel to Dave where there was the yeah. politician. Oh, oh perfect. Who, okay, yeah. Who, Stop uh, explaining it. We got it. <laughs> who decided that, um, you know, his life was over. So he hired a hitman to kill himself and then he didn't give a damn. And he just went out on the campaign trail and said whatever he wanted and became very, very popular. It's a trope in, uh, you know, coverage because we all sort of think that, boy, wouldn't it be refreshing just to have somebody who just lets it all hang out there. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, I think that that's okay in small doses, but I also think that that personality has been tried uh, many times. I mean, Jesus, that's Donald Trump. 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 Yeah. He just lets yeah. it all hang out there. Um, and there's a serious downside to that as well. You know, at the end of the day, our politicians are also required to be states people and you can't have them just setting tiny little fires everywhere. And sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. So there has got to be a, a calibration between 
sincerity and candor on one side and professionalism on the other. And that's that's mm. a line that politicians have to struggle with a lot of the time. There, there are lessons to be learned, though. Um, Carter paints an interesting parallel universe that I just want to dip into for just a moment, which is yeah, Jason it, it, Kenny becomes leader of the PCs, but does not try to push a merger with the Wild Rose. Now, on the downside, the PCs were the third party. They were not the official opposition. So that yeah. would have given kind of Brian Jean initially a bit of a heads head start, I think. But there is a universe where it's not dissimilar to 2015, where the NDP didn't need to merge with the Liberals, the Alberta Liberal Party. They didn't need to merge with the Alberta Greens. They just became the only competent player in that space. And as my friend Justin Archer says, they were the only ones dressed when the bus came. And mm. it's possible that Jason Kenney could have been the only conservative option dressed when the bus came. And instead of saying, we all got to be together in one team, he could have pitched, we've all got to vote for me, this conservative option. And uh, maybe he could have done something. It's hard to say. Um, certainly, they would have been dealing with some some pretty aggressive vote splits in the rural areas, I think. That would be unavoidable. Carter, can we can we dip back into our, like I mentioned earlier, our ongoing coverage of authenticity for a second? And can we talk about these X factor things like charm, charisma, like are they accelerants? Are they glue to keep you together, to keep a group together? How do you kind of, when you're advising a, a, a candidate that, that has got some of that in space and, and, you know, like him or not, Jason Kenny clearly does. This was a, a manifestation and a illustration of that, uh, the clip we just saw. How do you kind of, what are your rules on, on charisma and charm? Because we talk about it as a charm offensive, which almost implies that you can use it sparingly. Is that correct? Is that true? How do you kind of contour these things and these things that are so nebulous to begin with? You're asking me? Um, I'm asking the, you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's hard to articulate, Zane, how I maintain my charm and <laughs> uh, an idiot. <laughs> how I keep it for everybody all the time. No, the charm, charm is interesting because charm, you know, Charm can piss off 50% of the people that you meet. When you're a politician, you don't need to have charm that works with everybody. That's the beauty of Donald Trump. He, well, he, one would argue it's also it's also wildly subjective, right? Oh, it's totally. not an objective qualifier. I mean, there are some politicians universally people would say, yes, very charming, like him or not. But I, I, I understand that it's also a subjective territory. Keep and going. very yeah. much culturally specific. I mean... Uh, you've got Donald Trump in the U.S. That his charm. There was a charm to Brian Mulroney. There was a charm to Pierre Elliott Trudeau. I mean, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was a sex symbol, much like his son has become a sex symbol. Um, and Pierre Elliott Trudeau was an ugly, ugly man, and nonetheless became a, a sex symbol. Why is the, you know, how does charm work? We're not really entirely sure, but um, charm is somewhat in the eye of the person who is being charmed. Uh, if they're being, if, if, if they see something that they like, and I think that it can be there all the time. Boris Johnson had that kind of boyish charm that no, I certainly couldn't understand. Uh, mm -hmm. but it was there. And I think it needs to be there all the time. Um, and when you start mm -hmm. to lose it, when you become the person that people just simply don't like, uh, then it doesn't matter how charming you try to be. The mere fact that you're trying to be charming will be the thing that pisses people off, which is well, why personally part. I've given up on it. <laughs> Have you ever had to dial a candidate back on the charm offensive or on like using charisma as a crutch, for example? Like no. I can see you haven't. You've, you've actually no. told them to hit the gas on it. 
Is that fair to no, say? Because it's there or it's not. The very mm, definition of authentic is someone who can be charming when they walk into the room. Now, okay, I think that okay. there's different types of charming. Some candidates I've worked with one on one, it's impossible not to be drawn to their to their charisma, to the, their individual charisma one on one. Sometimes it's the small group candidate, the candidate that can walk into the small group and just wow everybody hold the room like Ginny Sims right now okay. is an excellent small group candidate charmer well, look, look, but then there's the room right when you walk into the room and you got 5,000 people watching you that charm that candidate's hard to find Zane the one who possesses all three of those things I think that Corey and I have seen individuals that possess one or two of those but it's very hard to see someone who's got all three Corey can I come to you in one second I, I know you want to get in on this but I have a follow-up for Carter specifically Carter, from your decision-making as an active campaigner, campaign manager, yeah. strategist, when you're choosing to work with a candidate, how big of a factor is this for you? The X factor, charm, charisma, stadium tour-like or group-like or one-to-one-like, do you have a preference between one of those three lanes? Do you look for it? Is it a non-starter if they don't have any of it in your eye? T- tell me your decision-making criteria as it relates to, I, I assume, viability, but where charm and, and charisma kind of play a role in that? The second group is the most important. The ability to walk in and wow a group of 8 to 20 people. Um, if everybody in that group of You would take 20, that over stadium tour style charisma? Like over I, Keith Urban style, <laughs> you know, fill a stadium and I could I could. Keith Urban you. was your pull there? Like That's just unbelievable. Like, I, I think we're both stadium country. I'm going to stadium country, Corey. Stadium okay. country. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, okay. That didn't really feel authentic, Zane. But anyways, okay, we well, really, I like Keith it. Urban. I like Keith Urban. Okay. Don't like. Um, I don't like. I don't like most of it. But there are tricks I can teach you to do a stadium, right? <laughs> there are tricks that that uh, we can teach in, in the stadium. Uh, like the the, it's much harder, I think, to teach someone to be authentic in small groups. It is much easier to get them to be authentic. You can give them tips and tricks to be authentic to the larger group. And I would argue that some of what Jason Kenny did was tips and tricks. Um, it's right. the stuff that he does in the small groups, the stuff that wowed um, Corey Hogan, right? Because Corey Hogan, when he was working there, you know, he, he'd worked with, with Notley. I'm not sure, Corey, if I'm speaking for you, but Don't. you know, you, you weren't walking into the room thinking, God, this guy's going to impress me. I can feel it. You're going in skeptical and you leave entranced because that's the, that's the way the guy yeah, operates. That's, I mean, you've just created fiction, but, but it's what I've done this. <laughs> Corey, get in on this. We're talking yeah, charm, charisma. Sure. We're talking Since about, we're talking about how I feel about things, why don't I hop in and tell you how I felt about things? <laughs> yeah, hey, Corey, uh, you were you around? Do you want to get in on this or what? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why you haven't been on it thus far. I don't know why. Yeah. why you All right. right. Well, here's the thing. I, I am ultimately fairly cynical after a lifetime in government and politics, mm. and it's not that easy uh, for me to be sort of wowed by the fundamentals in, in politics, the ability to just talk to somebody um, – in a, in a way that sounds semi-coherent, that's a baseline skill I would expect of anybody who gets into the premier's <laughs> chair. Um, I would say that both Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney are excellent examples of very good leaders in in the kind of the small area that Stephen Carter is talking about. Like the growth size can, sort of element. Both can bring significant amounts of charm. I can think about individual moments for both of them where I'm like, holy cow. Like, you know, it, it's you get why they're doing what they're doing at certain moments and they're small mm. moments, but they're so such telling moments. Like I can remember this one time 
Rachel Notley was doing the tour of the government offices around Christmas and she came to uh, my department. She's talking to the people who are on the floor and just everyone sort of scrums around to hear the premier talk. And I mean, holy crap, it was extemporaneous and it was five minutes and it was charming as hell. And like everyone in the audience was just sort of beaming afterwards. Uh, And then I can think of moments where uh, Jason Kenney is doing that initial tour of a public service. who's like, oh, here's the new guy. What's this going to mean? And charming as hell i mean they just have like this extra gear that a lot of politicians don't and and i do agree with steven that 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 ability to talk to small groups is probably the more important one you know not the Mm. one-on-one because you just you can't do the volume you need in politics at one-on-one uh and not the stadium because that is actually that no that's a produced pack that's a produced product though that's something that you can create with people around you in a way you simply cannot fake in, in small group meetings. So that's I That's a great agree point. That. And then all of us have been involved in, in those scenarios as well. So that's that's a, actually a really good point that often what we see from a stage is manicured way more than what someone has to deliver multiple rounds of 45 minutes at a time with a group of a dozen people. It's, well, it's a good point. yeah. And when you're talking to those groups of people, you've got to, if you've met them before, you've got to remember their concerns from before. You've there There is a, like a Something I tell in presentation training a lot is like a large group is a stranger to everybody, including itself. You do not know who in the group mm. the things might be applying to. So you can make a statement from the the podium and you can say something like, hey, uh, you know, I know there are people out there who might be thinking, what's going on with this? Right. Well, if you're in a group of six people, the six people might look at you and say, no, no one's thinking that, you know, small group yeah. has a higher level of difficulty. Uh, because you can't sort of just live in kind of the ambiguity as to what does the audience, another participant in this thing, the, the audience is right in front of you and the audience can tell you what they think. So that is a harder group to deal with. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you know, going back to, I know, Carter, we brought this up in the past around using things like theater and stand-up comedy, where we talk about, you know, the biggest skill or, or, or the biggest compliment one could be paid is if they're playing a stadium or an arena and it makes it feel like the room is one-tenth the size, that it is uh, it is an intimate group. And I feel like that that similarity also applies to politics, right? Where even if you're in a group of 12, the goal is to make people feel like they're, they're one-on-one and, and that everyone, to Corey's point with that Rachel Notley example, everyone was beaming. Corey, I want to give you a little bit more space. Any, any final thoughts on here before we wrap up? Because I just really wanted to use this Kenny clip as a jumping off point to talk about charisma, political humor, and frankly, that the practicality of could Kenny have been this guy? Anything final to add before we move on? Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I think just sort of needs to be thrown out there, and maybe we should have at the start, is that part of the reason why people are saying, wow, where was this Jason Kenny?" is because the media is not generally in the business of clipping the jokes from a political speech. Yeah, right? exactly. they, they, they clip the comments, you know, the, the bottom line, mm, the meat and potatoes, the announcement. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And that's what gets out there. So you don't always see that. But every single political speech is full of jokes. Every single political speech. There are very few politicians, you know, not every politician does the jokes well, but there is almost always kind of the icebreaker at the start and then the turn where you get more serious and then it loosens back up again at the end there. One of the people I always think of when I think about political jokes is Kent Hare, a candidate that, Stephen, you've worked for in the past. Um, He, uh, you know, his speeches would be 50% jokes before he got to the content. And I could, I bet you we could both do some of those jokes from memory. 
And then after he made his first joke in any speech, he'd say, oh, yeah, I, I hope you like that. But you know what the problem with political jokes is? Sometimes they get elected. Ah, and then the other, you know, joke comes. <laughs> You're, that's a knowing laugh. I know you've heard him make oh, that I've joke. I've heard that. I don't know how many times. It's unbelievable yeah. that you just did that joke. That's the best. Yeah. Um, comedy is part of politics because it's ultimately a performance art. Carter, I have to now, okay, I was going to end on here, but I have to follow up on Corey's thing. Uh, how important is it, if if your candidate is funny, how important is it to Corey's point where they don't clip the jokes that that penetration of being known as funny is, how important is it to, to be known as funny? Is that a gender thing Is it from your perspective? I'm just kind of curious now, just thinking about it out loud with, with the three of you, or the two of us, uh, three of us, two of you, um, how important is it if if you have that tool in your tool belt to be known for having that tool? Well, let's run through my three types of charisma. If you're funny on one-on-one and you share that kind of intimate moment with someone where you make them mm-hmm. laugh, they're going to remember you. Um, you're, you're sharing something back and forth between between you and someone else, and you're funny. And it's just a joke that the two of you shared, and it's something. It's a moment, and it is an emotional connection. Laughter is emotional. Um, so it's good. The second group is if you have a small group of people and you and you tell them a joke that just the, again, just the 20 of you get to share, um, you know, it's it's personal. It made maybe you made it look like um, you just thought of it on the spot. Right. That's the first time you've, you've ever you've ever uttered that phrase that made them all laugh and, and feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. Again, what a wonderful way to bring you into the group, you know, to a self-deprecating comment suddenly changes the way that the group feels about you. Um, and then if you can get into that big stadium show, you're Keith Urban, and you throw out some jokes. I mean, one of the reasons that I think... It- <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, yeah. Need to, we, need to, we, need to, we need to keep the Urban post. I feel like this is Beetlejuice. This is <laughs> no. Beetlejuice, guys. We say Keith Urban three there times, and he's going to be a running joke on this show for oh, the next over. three yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's but done. I think... I think that one of the reasons that Adele, I mean, Adele's an amazing performer, but she's also hilarious. If you've ever seen one of her shows, she's, she's, she brings you in and the 25,000 people who were sitting in her show all feel like they're getting a personal experience because they get to laugh. I mean, the three of us really understand the value of laughs. I mean, Zane and I, because we make other people laugh and Corey, because he doesn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good, Carter. All right. Uh, yeah, okay. also funny, very funny, John Mayer. Corey, anything to add on humor before we end this off? Yeah. Apparently, uh, funniest politician of the 90s in the United States. You want to take a guess? Carter, take a guess. Who do you in think? In the 1990s? In the 1990s. Uh, this is like, this is common Republicans, Democrats. They, they Across they the board. Like, they would, they would acknowledge the this. Funniest guy. Uh, like, has profile? Bob yeah, Dole? Like, Al, Al Gore. Al Gore. Al Gore. Oh, interesting. Al Gore. And I guess this is what I sort of want to wrap on. You Just because somebody is funny in private doesn't mean they need to be funny in public. And Al Gore's persona was like the opposite of funny in public. It was like the boring guy who invented the internet. Six more jokes than he would have had Florida. Uh, Let's move on to our next segment. (laughs) Our next segment, One Persuades, We Get Persuaded. Carter, it is time. It is time. We saved this topic from from the last episode that Corey and I were doing because it didn't deserve a drive-by. Although I didn't think that uh, the the conversation on charisma and comedy would take thirty five minutes, but here we are. Carter, here we we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Daniel Smith internal polling, Rick Bell, 
Corey, can I ask you to do some heavy lifting? Would it be possible to give the broad strokes of what I'm talking about here? I can try to do it, but I suspect you might have the better words to do it uh, if I can put you on the spot for a second. I, I maybe I I can start. You might have start, and I'll, I'll add some details. Yeah. ahead of you. Um, so there was a poll that was teased out by the Danielle Smith campaign as a series of boards on social media that was effectively used to try to rebut some of the criticisms that have been leveled against Danielle Smith. The uh, Sovereignty Act is unpopular. We can't win with Danielle Smith. Those were the two big ones, but there were probably six or seven questions that were that was sort of there that were asked, and Danielle Smith just dropped these one day saying, hey, we did this poll uh, and look at the results of this poll. Look, turns out people in Alberta like the Sovereignty Act, according to this poll. Right? Look, it looks like I would win an election against uh, Rachel Notley, according to this poll. Uh, not by a ton, by the way. Uh, also, it mm. was like by five points. And um, then these were shared and debated online. And I don't know if there's more you want to say about the specifics in here, but I almost don't know that it's worth getting into the specifics because there were a few things that were missing. What was your methodology? Uh, when did you run the poll? Uh, what was your sample size? How was your sample size constructed? Uh, what were the actual questions? What was the order of the questions? Um, and so on. And, and without that information, uh, and certainly knowing that the person who's providing you this this poll and and apparently commissioned this poll has a reason to ask questions in certain ways, I kind of feel the value of this poll is zero. It did, however lead to a Rick Bell column. It did mm -hmm. lead to a lot of social media activity. And it does fit into a general picture of Danielle Smith trying to calm the waters and saying things will be okay, serving some of her campaign interests. I find it problematic. I find it problematic that you can drop a poll like that in this fashion during a leadership race, because you are not allowed to during a general election. During a general election, either provincially or federally, you need to provide that information I just mentioned. Yeah. the script and, and the questions or else you're violating the law so this seems like a bit of a gap and it's also i think in general we should be deeply skeptical of partisan polls when there's an obvious interest in these things now maybe this poll's even all on the level but if it is i i'm wondering why they didn't provide some of the things that i'm talking it, about because it wasn't Corey. because it wasn't so, let's get into this carter because this is what i want to talk about so Corey, thank you for that based on that actually very helpful uh, I won't get into any details of the poll except for this. Danielle Smith, 45, Travis Trave, 28, Brian Jean, 9, Todd Lowen, 7, Rebecca Schultz, 6, everyone else way far behind. So, Carter, it, it is a poll that Danielle Smith and their camp haven't shied away from. They haven't said, hey, listen, we didn't produce this. No, this is, this is from us. They put it out there. There's a Rick Bell column written about it. He calls it, we're not talking uh, revealed until now numbers from, no, this is a new poll. He kind of says, 1,700, 1,800 UCP members eligible to vote as part of this poll. It's done by this pollster. It doesn't mention the Smith affiliation as related to that. So there's something to be said there. But Carter, you know, on this podcast, on television, on radio, on our commentary, we've talked about this concept of leaking your internals. Is this that or is this something different? I want to examine that first before we jump into this. Is this the concept of when we say leaking your internals? Is this what we just saw here six days ago? Yeah, this is exactly what leaking your internals are. I mean, it's it's probably one of the most bizarre outcomes from leaking your internals. Most of the time, what you're trying to do is just get someone to actually kind of think that maybe you're in the game or, or there's a momentum shift happening. You're very rarely asking them to publish it um, because no one should be publishing a poll 
in the province of Alberta, or in any other province for that matter, that doesn't start right off by saying what the methodology is. Who did you sample? Who does the random sample consist of? Right? So the fact that they say that they're polling uh, UCP members, was it all the UCP members? Was it the UCP members at the, at the cutoff date? Was it UCP members at, at a different date? We don't know. They, didn't, they weren't clear. The questions aren't shared. If you, if you show me a poll with an answer without the question, I'm sorry, but that's not an actual poll. That, that answer can be crafted to whatever question you want it to, to, to hit. You just, if you don't see these things, you should be immediately dismissing them on their face. And then an internal pollster saying, you know, this is what we found. What's the motivation for the polling company? The only motivation, and this isn't a real polling company. You don't see, you know, these polls, you know, from Hamish Marshall being run up the flagpole uh, on the national basis. I mean, this is a guy whose job it is, much like mine, to get people elected. And we don't, you know, was he using an IVR technology? I did an IVR um, sample out here in Surrey the other day. 50%, mm-hmm. 50% of the people who responded to the IVR were over 70 years old. 50%, right? <laughs> right? Like this is, IVR is useful for certain tools, but I certainly wouldn't use IVR to conduct a poll. Uh, well, it couldn't have been an online sample because it was the... Uh, the membership of the UCP. So did they hand dial? How did they dial these people? How did they choose? What was the randomization model? All of these things matter because the outcome changes, right? And yeah. th- this is, I mean, it's a small pool of people, right? A hundred and what, what do we say? 123,000 people. I mean, to first of all, the random sample that's still required to randomly sample 123,000 people with any degree of uh, accuracy is still going to be about 400. How long are you going to have to dial 123,000 people to get 400 people to respond? What what yeah. comes up when you ask the questions? Does it say the Danielle Smith campaign or does it say Hamish Marshall's campaign? So, you know what? I think let's let's just let's back up this horse a tiny bit because you're asking the right questions and I think the problem is we don't have those answers. That's right. But, but let's talk about know, why those things are important though. I well, think that's yeah. Yeah. But like, let's also chill out. It is possible to be a pollster who works for a politician and still be a, a good pollster who can figure these things out. Not the, the ones challenge who is, don't the list chal- it. Carter, yeah, the okay. challenge is the information, uh, whether it's available to us and whether we're able to process it. Because you can look, I mean, here's the reality of the situation. You can take it in as an input and you can say, well, well, maybe I should be a little bit skeptical about some of these things because of the source. If that's all, you know, there and it's all available for you to see easily, like not even hidden, but like mm-hmm. right in front of you mm-hmm. as these things are coming on. But the challenge becomes it, it sort of leans on the fact that a lot of people are poll naive. So they're not even knowing that some of these things are particularly challenging. And, and this well, is where it kind of brings up then, the broader question, right, of like what we should know. And Carter, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is how this led to a Rick Bell column, right? Because you said this led to one of the more bizarre outcomes that you've seen of a campaign's internal pools um, being uh, being released or, 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 or being floated out there. The, the, the bottom line is that uh, this fault doesn't lie with Hamish. This fault doesn't lie with the Danielle Smith campaign. Um, the Danielle Smith campaign's job is to spin this out and to get the, resp- the coverage that they want to get. The, pro- the fault lies with the media 
not understanding that they're seeing an internal number, not knowing enough about polls to ask the question, not asking where what was the question that was actually asked when you're showing me these results. These are the que- these are the questions. I've often thought that um, Paul Ferry, uh, who does all these great classes on you know politics municipally, federally, provincially, he should do a a, a class for uh, journalists on what statistics are and how to read a poll because the the media class doesn't understand what they're looking for. And if they don't know what they're looking for, they don't know when they're being misled. And I say that as someone who can and does work with the media when we're discussing polls. Uh, I like to think that I'm trying to be honest, but not everybody plays the same game that I do. Okay, so let, let's talk about it that way. Because, and, and before we do, Corey, I have to ask you, from your perspective, we've talked often about, you know, the media maybe not having the literacy, maybe not have the understanding. I'm not sure I always buy that. In certain cases, like there is a case to be made that that Rick Bell, we don't know, right, may have known that this was the internal Daniel Smith numbers. or may have sure. had a sense that that these were associated, related to, of the campaign. And so I don't know if I necessarily buy that there's a literacy delta, at least maybe not in this case, uh, as there may be in other cases. Well, um, so look, I think that we do need to draw a distinction between journalists and columnists. And of course, Rick Bell is a columnist, which means he he puts opinions out there. <clears throat> and so perhaps he is, he is just sort of picking the things that allow him to make the point that he wants to make in his column. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? If that's what's going on, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll let other people sort of parse that one out. Um, mm. But I do, I do think that I've, I've certainly had enough kind of like peers in to think that perhaps the, the media doesn't have like perfect poll literacy. And the reality is I run into so very few people in my day-to-day life who do. I mean, the number of common conversations mm. I have about, okay, but this is actually what margin of error means. Margin of error doesn't mean it's as likely to be 3% off as not at off at all. It's following a normal curve. It's actually much more likely to be the number reported. You know, you just, you think about it, it's, it's a curve. It's not like equal probability within these bands. Uh, the number of times I've had to talk about order effect and why that matters. And, you know, yeah, okay. So they asked the same question across two polls, but the first time they said, who are you going to vote for after asking, were you aware of Jason K- or of Justin Trudeau's blackface scandal, right? Well, that's going to change your numbers, right? And there are some of these concepts that, I'm not necessarily even sure are intuitive. And certainly I think we would all so benefit from refreshers on a regular basis on these things. And I do think that the, the journalist can sometimes in a busy role, just sort of report these things perhaps without having the full context that, that a, a critic of polls would be able to provide. Okay, Carter, let's make this constructive then. Cause you guys have both given me, I, I, I you've both persuaded me. Uh, you've one persuaded me um, that, that we should, <laughs> that we should make this constructive. So Corey's put out a few things. If Carter, you were helping us put the one pager together, okay? This is the one page syllabus that whether it's Paul Ferry, whoever's going to teach this course, okay? We're, we're getting our input into it. What needs to be on there? Corey's talked about a few things in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the importance of the order effect, uh, question construction. What else needs to be? I also said, you know, how to truly understand margin of error. What else are you adding to this list, Carter? What else are you adding and why to the list? And Corey, I'll, I'll swing back at you to, to, to build a list further. So we've got order effect, question construction. We've got margin of error. What else are we adding, Carter, in terms of what folks need to truly understand? Sample size. 
super important. Understanding how the sample was derived and who the who the who the uh, who the general market of this sample was. So, for example, if you do a poll uh, where you're testing landlines only, or even landlines and cell phone with a blocked number or something along those lines, you're going to get a much different response rates from different demographics. Um, well- you yeah, know? and and on a corollary to the margin of error, margin of error is a concept that only applies to a truly probabilistic sample, like true mm. randomness, which you do not get from just calling phone numbers these days. Well, and, and one would argue that you don't get the same results. So it, back in the day, the gold standard was picking up the telephone and calling landlines because everybody had a landline and you had a chance of getting your full sample done. Um, the gold standard now is is one that basically takes people offline, uh, you know, online, then to the telephone, and then kind of works everything back through bigger samples uh, because it's so hard to get. Like, do you know how hard it is to get eighteen to thirty year olds on an IVR sample? I mean, that's that's a it's almost an impossibility um, to get them on mm. uh, to answer a telephone call at all is nearly impossible. They're doing things now in one question samples using texts and. Uh, online uh, advertising. Um, everything is changing. So if you don't understand that methodology by which the sample is put together and how the random sample was actually accessed, you will never know what the... Like, I know that when I see a poll that is conducted by telephone, I know that it skews a certain way. If I see another poll that is conducted by online sample, I know how it skews. You know, each one is different. It's, it's build is the same. And then you get the, the the random IVR sample that's thrown in there now as well. And I'll tell you something, I, I wouldn't, I, it's not worth the paper it's printed on um, if it's an IVR sample. So all of those things come together to, to just talk about the sample. The other thing um, that I would probably, the, the sample size and the methodology, the other thing that I would look at, and, and Corey, did you, do we still even have that information of the, of the, uh, the order? Uh, bias that you that you played that you created when we were at H and K. Do you remember that? Uh boy, like we did so much interesting research at that time. I, the one that I pulled up as we were talking here was actually about mm-hmm. how questions matter and yeah. how changing the question can absolutely screw with. You mean just simply on language? Is that what you're just suggesting? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Do you have uh, so that I don't know. Handy? Read that. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, we did this in the context of uh, just after the 2015 election, there was a conversation about how it was going to be the last first past the post election. And then there was some potential that perhaps that electoral reform commission, one of the things that might come out of it would be um, a national referendum on whether we should change our voting system. And we actually ran a test as a, as a pod, we did this, like we, we paid Mm -hmm. for the sample and we did this uh, where we said, well, well, interesting what might like just the changing of the question do and the basic thesis was you change the question you change the outcome this has always been my problem with referendums right Right. Uh, it's so up it's not about the answer it's about the question and finding the most neutral phrasing of it like like the debate over the question determines everything here and here let me illustrate this in a very plain sense so we ran a survey, I think it was, uh, it was at least 500 each, but I, I don't have that in front of me here. But we asked random samples constructed the same way, the same question or two different questions that both had yes or no answers to it. We kept sort of everything constant except for the question itself. So we asked, 
Should Canada change the method it elects members of parliament from first past the post to proportional representation? 45.8% of that sample said yes. 54.2% said no. Okay, that's interesting here, right? Uh, well, well, then we asked a different version. Do you agree that Canada should update its voting method for federal elections to proportional representation? 58.3% said yes this time. That's a swing of 13 points. 41.7% said no. So what the hell's going on here? Mm-hmm. Well, the phrasing, well, perhaps subtle, is really important. So in the one where people were supportive of proportional representation, we asked, do you agree rather than should, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all immediately, like you're agreeable if you say yes, you're disagreeable if you say no. Bandwagon Some effect. Psychology yep. There. Yep. Update its voting method rather than change its voting method. So update, that's that's got a value judgment in it. That's talking about improving a voting system, right? And all of a sudden, um, you think, okay, that's that's maybe better because it's called updating. So that's going to push things towards yes. And then the final change is it talked about updating voting for federal elections to proportional representation rather than saying you're going to elect your member of parliament differently. So we made mm. it about the system rather than your individual member of parliament. So with those three small changes... The results went from 45.8% yes to 58.3% yes. And if you're curious, it's an online sample. doesn't really technically have margin of error, but it would be outside a margin of error on those particular points. So if you don't know the question of the poll question that's been put in front of you and you only see the results. Yeah, Daniel, that should be a huge red flag. Case, like, right, exactly. That like, should be a huge for red any flag. Of the questions. Right, right. And and especially as it relates to some of the deeper down questions, which um, perhaps, uh, Carter, when we kind of bring it back to this poll, um, rebuff what we've seen before around low. There's a lot of support for the Sovereignty Act, right? Like when you talk about what Corey just mentioned around question language, even your own mind can start thinking about how the phraseology, and we don't know this, right? Like this is speculative. We don't know this, but using this as a jumping off point, how phraseology and other things can shift an outcome. Isn't that right, Carter? Yeah, I think that if you, the challenge is that if you don't have all the facts, then you're and you don't have an understanding of how all these facts fit together, then you're it's virtually impossible to read a poll properly, and that's why, you know, that's why I, I've been so uh, critical of the media in polling in general because in general they do a terrible job. They do a much better job when they're talking to someone like Janet Brown, who's a you know, a renowned pollster who is able to uh, parse it together for them that has a history of being able to speak to the media and making it understandable for them in in super easy to understand bites. Uh, but God forbid you ever give them a, a table of cross tabs. Like if you gave a, if, if I gave a bad poll to Corey and I said to Corey, break down this poll and tell me why it doesn't make sense. He'd be mm-hmm. able to go through the numbers and look at the cross tabs. In fact, I just did this recently. We went through and looked at, at cross tabs, and we could see very clearly where an oversample occurred within yeah. one of the cross tabs. And you go, okay, well, there's a big problem because if we oversample this area, and, and then we're Carter, no longer just so, able. Just so, just so folks can understand, when you say cross tabulation, you mean it's the questions that have been asked cross tabulated with uh, one of the, the the demographics, the regions, the age, the gender, income levels, et cetera, right? Just to be just to be totally clear. Or it's two questions kind of cross tabulated. Que- so together. it could even be two yeah. demographic questions combined, Zane. And Correct. so Correct. when you're looking at the cross tabs on the demographic side, sometimes that stuff just pops out at you and you say, okay, well, listen, 
our entire youth sample is people making over $300,000 a year. What the fuck are we supposed to make with that? And there's only four of them. And, you know, like you can figure all that out. So, Carl, that's what you mean by crosstabs. Keep going on that. Exactly. And you can see that things are divided into two halves, but one half is actually much larger than the other half. Does that accurately reflect the population in those two halves? And you can you can go through and you can pick out um, a poll and then a reputable pollster will weight things so that it accurately represents the actual outcomes. And that weighting process is very, very challenging. It does not just, you know, fall off the pen easily. It is something that uh, are we waiting just for age? Are we waiting, as, as Corey would have just suggested, for income? Are we waiting for district or community? What are we waiting for? Um, you can actually wait for the past performances of elections. There's all kinds of different ways that you can wait the poll in order to get it more closely accurate, right? So how did what data have we accumulated over our history of data collection that will enable us to help make this more accurate? Not to shift the results, but to actually represent more accurately the randomization of the poll sample to the general population that we're trying to reflect. And that that stuff is just lost on the average person. So, and by the average person, I'm also including the media, who can be law, oftentimes fed a poll that doesn't make sense, and you can and and they write it up like it it is the truth from God Himself or herself, probably. And that truth is then you know distributed through the media. And there's a big question as to whether or not the public follows the polls or the polls follow the public. And mm. uh, I would argue that the public, given the data that I've seen, the public follows the polls much more. And, and there's a whole there's a whole thing on engagement structure. Like you only become engaged the moment you answer the phone that we can have a whole conversation about. But um, bottom line, it is engagement that dictates outcome. And the engagement only begins when the poll is conducted. And that fundamentally changes everything because most people aren't engaging at the exact same time. Put a pin on that particular one, Carter. I want to round out the conversation with that because that's fascinating. Corey, let me give you a summary of our list thus far. Order effect, question construction and language, margin of error to understand if it's a truly random sample, sample size and how the poll was constructed, and cross-tabulations and how to read them. What else needs to go on the uh, syllabus, Corey, as, as I round this out with you, and I'll, Carter, I'll give you one more take, and then I want to go into to round this conversation out. Carter's content here about um, this concept of public following polls or vice versa. What else needs to go on the syllabus, Corey? Uh, so the sample size, we Carter alluded to it, but we didn't really unpack. The way the yeah, math can, works is basically any population, you're going to need about 400 people to get a, a respectable margin of error. And you might think like, How is 400 good enough for Canada? How is it also equally good enough for the UCP membership? And then that's just the way kind of the the math works out on it all. I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on it, but the point is you need a sufficient sample size in both cases, but also a sample size of 4,000 is not really going to tell you a ton that a sample size of 500 would have nationally, unless you're breaking into those crosstabs and trying to get, uh, you know, some of the smaller demographic groups and and get a bit of an understanding on it. There's something, though, that Carter said that that is the kind of like the kernel of the most important thing to think about when you think about polls. Right. And he talked about how, for example, in an IVR poll, it's really difficult to get young voters on the line. 
And how do you adjust for that? And all sorts of different people have taken all sorts of different mechanisms to get there. Um, one of the things that Carter said there along the way, though, is when he hears about a poll methodology, he's like, so I know how it skews. Well, be a little careful with that because people do take these additional steps to try to pull out those errors to get you as close to possible as the real deal. If they are generally a pollster who is being measured on how accurate they are. And that's a really important caveat here. And this is the point I want to make about incentives, right? Mm. Pollsters who are like media pollsters or pollsters who work for a variety of clients, such as Janet Brown, really reputable pollsters, have a huge incentive to correct for these things in a scientific, methodological way to come as close to reality as possible. Their incentive is an incentive towards accuracy. Getting it right. Where you... You have to be careful is that if you are a pollster who works uh, a lot with partisan pollsters or like partisan organizations, and perhaps your poll is even being weaponized to say, uh, look, this is okay, therefore you should vote for me and and create like that self-fulfilling thing, Stephen Carter is, your incentive is entirely different. Your incentive is to keep the client happy in that case. And what the client wants in that case is, is a poll that shows the story they're trying to tell. So incentives are important to keep in mind, too. And I think that most conversations about polls, if you're a journalist, could probably begin and end there, right? Is this Mm. a pollster who is putting their stuff out into the public domain and relies on being accurate to get future work? Or is this somebody who was hired to do a poll whose future work actually comes from how well they play ball with the candidate? Very important to parse. Carter, I'm putting incentives at the top of the list. Order effective, question construction, margin of error, sample size, question language, cross-tabulation, anything else to add to the syllabus that, that needs to be constructed for this course? Um, I don't know. I think, um, I think that, that's, that that's pretty much it right now. I think that there's probably advanced courses that we could go into, uh, sure. depending on the student's you know, desire to, to want to learn more. I would love, like, there's a, Robson uh, Fletcher is a data specialist with CBC. And I think that there should be a data specialist at every every news station now. Um, mm. Because data is driving our decisions and it's driving the way that we um, do uh, politics. It's driving the way that we do uh, transportation. It's driving the way that we responded to COVID. It's, it, it, it is this new frontier that's really not that new anymore. Um, and it needs to be understood um, very well if it's actually going to to be a, a vital part of stories. And I would suggest to you right now that polls are the crack cocaine of of, of politics, uh, political reporting especially. And you need to, if you're going to be that reliant upon them, you need to understand them a lot more. Okay, Carter, thanks for that. We'll get to Eric Granny to, to round out the rest. Uh, I want to talk about, yeah, no problem, no problem at all. Uh, Corey, let's talk about incentives. This is what Carter was alluding to. This is what you explicitly mentioned. Uh, Corey, you threw out the word weaponization. Carter threw out the term, do the polls follow the public or do the public follow the polls? Carter, can you explain what you mean by that when you say the public follows the polls? Because I I suspect in some ways it may not be dissimilar to Corey throwing out the, the term weaponization of polling in some way. The public follows the polls because they're looking to figure out who who they should vote for, um, and they like to vote for the winner. Um, there's this idea that that uh, you know people take this 
rational view of politics and they review the the platforms and the and the information from top to bottom and make an informed choice. That's just bullshit. They make a decision based on a snap judgment, and oftentimes that snap judgment is I may as well vote for the guy who's going to win or the woman who's going to win. Um, that that decision is not informed, but it is a large portion of of how we choose. Uh, you know, how we choose outcomes. So this is why momentum, the underdog effect that I've been able to work on with, you know, Joe Tigondek, Nahed Nenshi, Alison Redford. Why does the underdog effect work? Well, the same reason that you choose the underdog in the Super Bowl. Everybody wants to see the underdog win. And if it looks like the underdog's got momentum, then all of a sudden everybody switches their votes over to the underdog with momentum. That's where the polls lead the public. So if the polls are showing momentum, we knew with Nenshi in 2010 we had a poll that came out the Tuesday before the voting day on Monday, and it had us tied. And that was it. We'd won. It was over. Because the tie showed that we were the ones with momentum. And momentum then moved. That meant that everybody moved to us, and we didn't even have to do anything after that. It just worked beautifully. So that's what I mean when the polls lead the public. Um, the public is not necessarily leading the polls, because a lot of the people who are answering these polls have put no thought into their responses until the second they answer the telephone. And it's the mood of that particular moment that determines the outcome in the poll. The poll is not necessarily then a reflection of in-depth thought. It is a reflection of 400 people's attitudes at that moment. And in that particular that, snapshot. Yeah. And, and that we keep talking about a poll is a snapshot. A poll is a snapshot. Well, what if a poll is a snapshot that the general population then tries to emulate on election day? That's an interesting question. And that's where, Corey, the term weaponization can happen, too, because if you put your thumb on the scale, for example, if you say that we're not changing how we vote, but we're updating it and people are are triggered by the word update. Great. Yeah. Update sounds awesome. It's a value judgment to your point. I like to update my phone. I get new features. There's new new possibilities. Great. Let's go with update. And then you could see the downstream effects of using a poll like that to then construct a broader public opinion. Yeah, well, look, I mean, when I talk about weaponizing, I I mean that, but I actually mean something broader too. Mm. Uh, and maybe take it to a bit of a different setting. Uh, sure, imagine sure. that you're, well, I'll, listen, I worked in the government for years. This happened. This is not a hypothetical. There would often be debates, policy debates, uh, debates about opinion, and uh, then there would be polling. That was done. Well, let's see how Albertans feel about this. Some of these questions are knowable. Let's go out there and answer things. And when I talk about the weaponization of polling, you know, we we know there are many different ways to ask questions. We know that there are many different ways to get outcomes, depending on how you want to frame things, what you put in the window ahead of the question and all of that. Um, but what happens uh, is you can have people go out and do polling and then they can take it to the next time there's that policy debate or that next conversation, or God forbid, even with the premier. Mm -hmm. And if the premier hasn't seen that poll and, and the premier will say, well, I disagree. And they'll say, well, premier, here's a poll. And they'll put that poll on the table. Right. And that's a weaponization of a poll. Polls are often used in workforces, particularly in government to end debates, right? Like you're talking about your opinion. I'm giving you facts, but everything mm. we've talked about right here. I think should underline that polling is as much an art as it is a science. And uh, it's not always a fact simply because a poll says so. We haven't even talked about some of the other things in that advanced course Carter's talking about, but we often do. 
You might have asked a very novel concept, something they've never thought about before, and they've given you an opinion cheaply, and they will change that opinion cheaply, right? If you're not talking about something that they've thought about their whole life. But when you're then the media, polls do serve sort of a similar debate ending, you know, format. Think about how many columns there were from how many columnists about where they thought the race was going and who was up and who was mm-hmm, down in the mm-hmm. UCP. And how they all sort of just get squashed by a poll, a poll that says, actually, this is who's up. This is where everybody is going. And that's the power of a poll. And that's the danger of a poll that they get treated as data when, you know, you you can only really do so if you're following a series of best practices that you best be informed on if you're going to be treating it as data. And so that's the risk. The other thing I will say, because we didn't talk about it in your big lineup of, of challenges is. Yeah. There is something called response and non-response bias in polls. And this is something I've pulled my own hair about with CRTC rules that require you to say who the sponsor of a poll is when it goes Mm -hmm. out now. You guys will both remember me arguing with the CRTC about these, about how it will make polling worse. And the reason is, well, I'll use a very real example here. Imagine you have a poll and it starts with, this is polling group A calling on behalf of Danielle Smith. We have some questions. Now, if you do that poll or not, it's going to be driven in some part about how you feel about the people who are asking the polls. And the answers you give or not, similarly, will be based on how you feel about the person who was giving the poll. So mm-hmm. let me ask you a really simple one. If I call from polling group A on behalf of Danielle Smith, would you like to answer some questions? That very first question is, are you going to answer some questions, right? Do you think you're mm-hmm. more likely to say yes or no if you like Danielle Smith? And do you think you're going to be more or less likely to say yes or no if you hate Danielle Smith? So that changes the pool out of your sample right off the bat. And so there are challenges here. And unless we know the actual script and we can actually account for those things and we can think about those things, it's very difficult to treat these things as data. And yet we're all asked to treat all polls as data all of the time. Carter, talk to us about weaponization. And then what I'll do is I'll summarize our syllabus to hand off to to hand off to whoever, who knows, we might put this course together, Carter, but give me one more round on, on weaponization, and then we'll summarize where we've been on, on this conversation on polling. Best example of weaponization and polling I've ever seen is Alan Hallman working for Gordon Dirks in 2014, the by-election that Greg Clark was fighting. Uh, he got a poll that was a couple of weeks old and released it. Uh, only one media outlet covered it, Gary Bobrovitz with uh, Global Television. And it showed that it was a two-way race between the Wild Rose and the PCs. Uh, we just put out a poll the week before saying it was a two-way race between the PCs and the uh, Alberta party. The Alberta, that, that first poll, the one that we put out, was forgotten. This poll became the, uh, the, you know, the Bible. If you wanted to beat the Wild Rose, you had to vote for the PCs. Uh, if you wanted to beat the PCs, you had to vote for the Wild Rose. And ultimately, the Alberta party came second. Greg Clark came second in that by-election. Had that poll not been released, that old poll that was not accurate, that did not ask the right questions, that did not have the right information, if that poll hadn't been released, then it would have been between Greg Clark and Gordon Dirks, and people would have voted for Greg Clark to defeat the PCs, or to, yeah, to defeat the PCs. How do I know that? Because the general election was held within six months afterwards, and Greg Clark was the person who could beat the PCs, and he did beat the PCs. 
the he, uh, Calgary Elbow was not caught up in the NDP wave because the most likely group to beat the NDP or to beat the PCs in Calgary Elbow was clearly known to be Greg Clark. That is the perfect example of how polls can be weaponized to drive the outcome instead of having polls weaponized uh, or instead of having polls used to reflect the current situation. Nicely done. Okay, let's let's summarize this. We've got order effect. Actually, you know what? We're going to put incentives at the top because I like what Corey said there. Order effect, question construction. Corey, I've added a sub-bullet on novel concepts. Margin of error. I'm also adding response and non-response bias. Sample size and how it's polled. Question language we talked about. Cross-tabulations, how to read them. And that is it. That is the syllabus. Nicely done, guys. Um, Carter, any final thoughts before we move on? No, I'm just, I'm shocked that Corey came up with so many good ideas. I'm a little bit it's, taken it's like, it's kind of like It's kind of like he knows what he's doing. Um, yeah. You know, not dissimilar to Keith Urban when he just fills out a stadium of fans. <laughs> you know, he is uh, charisma on uh, on 11. Uh, mm-hmm. Carter, let's move it on to our final segment, our over, under, and our lightning round. I could spend a whole segment and a whole conversation, a whole episode on what I'm going to talk about next. But Carter, Pierre Polyev has hired his chief of staff. The opposition leader, the conservative leader, has hired his chief of staff. Uh, with an old school hire, one might say, I, you know, with Ian Todd, used to be chief of staff to Alliance leader Stockwell Day, uh, also used to uh, spend significant time with Reform Party leader Preston Manning. So he's gone in that direction. But Carter, chiefs of staff for opposition leaders is my question. So we've talked extensively about the chief as it relates to ministers, as it relates to the prime minister, the premier, but chiefs of staff of opposition leaders, overrated or underrated? I think underrated because I think that in opposition, you have the tendency or the, the capacity to really go too far quite often. And a good chief of staff um, can make sure that, the, op- that the, the opposition isn't just gunning for that opposition rule forever, but they actually have a good strategy to go from opposition all the way through to government. And I think that Ian Todd, I, I, I know Ian Todd, I quite like Ian Todd. I think he's, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's a very uh, capable person. And uh It'd be very good for Pierre Polyev to have a stabilizing influence like someone like Ian Todd. Corey, overrated, underrated, opposition leader, chiefs of staff. Uh, well, I think underrated because the reality is when you're in a government, you have so many resources and there's so many levers you can pull and there's so many people around who can assist you with things um, that you can sort of kick off to and you can blame the bureaucracy and all of that. But when you're in opposition... You're the leader and you've got your team and it's a team you somewhat share with your caucus, but you've got your caucus. And a chief of staff sometimes has to be, uh, you know, the the bad guy and come in and say the unpopular thing that the leader can't say. Sometimes has to be the person who keeps everybody on message, just as Stephen Carter's talked about. And there's really nobody else who can do that role because the team is so much smaller. So you you don't get like the luxury of having a chief of staff who can delegate these important roles to five other competent people in that orbit, each specialized on it. The chief of staff, when you're in the opposition, mm. needs to kind of be the cook and bottle washer and just a hyper competent individual who can manage a lot of competing interests without the same level of support you get when you're in the PMO. Corey, I'm going to stick with you for our next one. I'm also going to keep it on, on Pierre Polyev because one of the things that this article mentions outside of the fact that Ian Todd has been hired and Carter says he, he knows him and he's been around politics for a while, this individual. But this article also highlights, Corey, that the staff search for Pierre Polyev 
has been challenging, that he's had difficulty uh, getting people to step away from their corporate gigs to help him out, which seems perhaps interesting considering he won in a runaway train fashion. Many feel he's the front runner for the next election. We've discussed that on this program. So, Corey, overrated or underrated in your mind, the, the staffing challenges for Pierre Polyev. And once again, we could do an entire episode on staffing challenges and what that means. But in your hot take, overrated, underrated? It's underrated, but I, I'm not laying it at his feet. I'm mm. not. I think in general, we have created in politicians a role that is deeply unpalatable, where you're asking people to work 24-7 for less money than they would be making elsewhere and less respect uh, than they would be getting in most other roles. Certainly, you get the limelight, you get the popularity, but that's, you know, you know, you have the other half of the population hating you all of the time. Doubly true for political staff, because you don't even get that limelight kick, right? Mm. So you're asking people to to take on these roles where your salary will always be in question. You have no job security. It is a 24-7 job. And in many ways, I think it's a miracle that anybody does the job in the first place. There's like three jobs in the world I can't understand why anybody takes. Media, bike courier, political staffer. Because, <laughs> because ultimately, all of them require you to give so much and risk so much and get so relatively little back in return. I'm so thankful they all do it, especially the bike couriers. But it is, it is just wild to me that anybody takes these jobs. Carter, Corey says, uh, you know, this is not at Pierre Polyev's feet, but overrated, underrated, his challenge finding staff. You know, I, I mentioned earlier the context, having people move away from private sector roles, but may seem a bit surprising considering the runaway nature train of, of Pierre Polyev and, and many people considering him to be the favorite. I think it actually shows a real maturity. I think there would have been no problem finding someone who was young and immature and, fit right into the mold of some of the worst excesses of uh, Pierre Polyev. Uh, I'm quite certain that he would have been able to fill the role with what, you know, we used to lovingly refer to as the boys in short pants uh, when it was Stephen Harper's government. Um, and I think that the fact that he didn't, the fact that he waited to hire someone who was um, of the stature of Ian Todd brings in this idea that Maybe he is looking for someone who to be a partner instead of someone just to, mm. to be a yes person. So I'm quite certain he could have found lots of people who would have taken the gig. I'm not sure that he would have found anybody who would have been qualified to take the gig. Um, I know there's lots of people who will be chief of staffs, but not lots of chiefs of staff. You know, it's, it's a tough job. Carter, are you in or are you out on Jason Kenney's goodbye tour and what you've seen thus far. You know, we talked about the speech and the charm offensive conversation we had at length, but also this weekend he, he spoke to the Alberta Strong, or the Canada Strong and Free Conference in Red Deer in Alberta. And he said, listen, my intention was never to be in this gig for a long time. Even if I ran next election, I would have ditched 18 months in. As an overall construct, from your mind, what you've seen of Jason Kenney and his goodbye tour, are you in or are you out from a strategist lens on what you're seeing? Yeah, no. I mean, I was leaving Jody Gondek's office probably within the next two or three weeks um, before I got, you know, but then I got fired. So I was going to leave anyways. <laughs> um, Allison Redford, I mean, when I got fired on election day in 2015 uh, or 2012, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to stick around very long anyways. Um, so I totally understand Jason Kenney's idea that he wasn't going to stick around. Uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but the truth of the matter is he was going to stick around as long as he could because it, uh, 
Corey has said that being premier is better than not being premier. Most first ministers only get about 10 years and they don't get a crack at the top job. I mean, when was the last time we saw a premier even contest uh, for the top job? Um, it just doesn't happen. So I think it was Stanfield, was it not? Like way back. Uh, if I mean, I guess because Ray was in term and I can't think of anybody else. Yeah. Somebody will correct yeah, us. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very tough thing to to do to be the premier to take the to take the hits that you take in your home province um, and then turn that into something vaguely resembling a federal career. It's really hard. So I think that Jason Kenney um, is kind of writing his own exit strategy. I, I give him um, full props for that. I, I may have had to write one or two of my own exit strategies. So go for it <laughs> and. Uh, you know, that's just the way, that's the way he should be doing it. But let's not go crazy. He would have stayed around much longer if he was given the opportunity because I think at the end of the day, Jason Kenney um, likes to govern. I'm just not sure that he liked provincial politics. Corey, from the strategist's eye, from a strategist's eye, are you in or out on Jason Kenney's goodbye tour? I'm in. I, th- I think this is what you do when you're leaving a job like this. You take the opportunity to, to redefine all of those years, the good and the bad, you you kind of brush off all of the shit and you just polish it up and you say mission accomplished. And and nobody ever pretends otherwise, right? And um and, and ultimately I think that he is benefiting from a bit of a well, we started talking about all of the people who were saying, Oh, where was this guy? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Well, to Carter's earlier point, he was always there. People are just looking at him a little bit differently now. This is his opportunity to, um, you know, the next six months in Alberta politics might be wild. And you might have as a kind of a common commentary, like, geez, where I wish we had Jason Kenney, right? Um, you just don't know. And and I think what he's doing is trying to set himself up as this affable guy people think fondly of on his way out the door. And I mean, it's better than sulking on the way out, is it not? I mean, this this seems like a pretty reasonable approach. Final question, Corey, I'm going to start with you. Charm in politics. Charisma, charm, overrated or underrated? Oh, underrated, big time. As Steve and I were saying, it's the small group meeting is everything. And your ability to kind of captivate them and make them feel good about it and make them want to be in those meetings is huge. And I actually think if if you're listening and you don't actually know a lot of politicians, politicians are funnier, more charming than you think. Um, because that's how they get into the jobs in the first place. It, it's it's actually something that doesn't necessarily come through through mass media and social media and all of the other channels that are available. But one on one, one on small group, generally charming, funny people. Carter, overrated, underrated, charm or charisma, charm and or charisma. Let's put it together. What's your take? Underrated. I agree with Corey, everything that Corey said, but it's it's not as important as being the host of uh, one of the top rated political podcasts in in Canada. So <laughs> I mean, I, I would I would leave in a heartbeat if Keith Urban wanted me on tour. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1004 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Belgi. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time.